Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we offer resources to equip you and stories to inspire you on your adoption journey. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Welcome to this month's mailbag episode, where we answer your questions. Our first question today comes from Rebecca, and she asks, We're pretty familiar with TBRI and other really great trauma-informed parenting resources, but I find that I often get stuck in that they heavily rely on the child being verbal and having typically typical processing. Sometimes I feel like I just love some resources that take more into account a child who has limited language and intellectual differences. Any suggestions for resources would be greatly welcomed. I love this question. I actually remember probably... 11 or 12 years ago, standing in a lobby at an Empowered to Connect conference and asking Amy Monroe this very question. I felt like everything had to do with choices and giving voice. And we had this two-year-old from Korea who didn't speak English as his first language and had um, language delays. And I just didn't know what to do with myself. We've learned so much since then. And now I feel like so much of what I encourage parents to do is actually nonverbal. You know, the more we learn about co-regulation and how much our nervous system is communicating with other nervous systems with all these nonverbal signals, um, I have realized how much, you know, one, my own self-regulation means to TBRI and parenting and child's ability to feel safe. And then that kind of trickles down into, you know, usually more acceptable behaviors. And then I think also if you're looking at bigger interventions, you know, we're really big fans here uh, at the Adoption Connection for like body work type things, you know, things that soothe and calm that lower part of the nervous system that is nonverbal. So, you know, things like safe and sound protocol is a great example, kind of the in-between of, of very verbal and like no language at all is you know, as our kids, you know, we develop gross motor skills before we develop the fine motor skills for speech. So using, um, we love signing time, which teaches American sign language. So using sign language as a intermediate um, way of communicating basic concepts before children have the actual ability to put, you know, words together with their mouth. They often have language. They just don't have the uh, ability to speak it. That's such a good point, Melissa, because our children, we do communicate whether we use words or not. And so much of what we're trying to do with our kids is increase their felt safety, increase their connection with us. And that can be done non-verbally. I mean, even the giving of choices, we use our hands to demonstrate or Dr. Purvis would hold up two fingers and tap one. Like, do you want gum? And she touched one finger and or do you want a glass of juice or whatever. And I do it by holding out my hands, one hand and then the other. So the child doesn't have to use words at all to respond. And you don't even have to use many words either. So their processing time, maybe it's going to be a little bit slower, but that's okay. You can wait for them to respond. And if they can't do it, you just offer a little more support and help. And so many uh, things that we suggest for regulation are also not necessarily, they don't require verbal skills or uh, fast processing. Like we talk a lot about uh, rocking in a rocking chair. We talk about the use of music and movement. And so there are so many things I think that we can do 
that build connection, build relationship, build attachment, and help our kids feel safe without using as much language. So it might require a little more creativity on your part, but we we know you can do it. And if you have more specific questions about this, of course, you can always ask us in our Facebook group. I would also say this, even if your child does have language, we will always do better, especially for kids who are struggling or dysregulated in the moment to use less words anyway. Uh, Words really stress our kids out. So we actually want to challenge ourselves, I think, in even situations where there's not a language delay to just use less words. I'm a super verbal person and I'm a lecturer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I tend to go overboard with words, but it's always better. It always works out better. You know, if I start with choices, you know four or five words total between the two choices. (laughs) Yes. I am also a talker and a verbal processor. And I remember when we were writing the connected parent, I asked Dr. Purvis now, how many words when a child's dysregulated and we're trying to not use too many words, how many words should we say parents should use? And she said, just as few as possible, because we know that our children, the tone of our voice is more important than the actual words being said. So Yes, I think you're on the right track and you've got, hopefully we've offered some suggestions that might be helpful to you. Okay, our next question comes from Emily who asks, how do you handle situations with kids who use the bathroom to avoid responsibility or chores? Here's an example. My daughter, age 10, was told to clean up her trash from breakfast this morning. She immediately beelined to the bathroom and spent 20 minutes there. Her doctor has worked her up for possible constipation issues with no medical findings. It just seems to be a stalling technique. Hmm. I think we've had this happen in our family. (laughs) How about you, Melissa? Well, y'all know how much I, you know, love chores. So I don't know. Maybe I am this kid still. So I think, you know, are you saying you hide in the bathroom after dinner, Melissa? (laughs) Uh, Maybe you can talk to my (laughs) husband about what happens when there's some kind of like household chore that needs to happen. <laughs> we just got a refriger- a new refrigerator last month and um, we had to reschedule it because we all had COVID, but it turns out that it was delivered at a time when I was actually out of town and I was such a happy camper. Like, cause you can bet like when it was time to like clean out the old fridge and like pick through like what needs to be thrown out and like load the new fridge. Like I was probably not going to be anywhere to be found friends. <laughs> Okay. That's funny. Cause I'd be just the opposite. Like, no way I have to be a new fridge is coming. I have to be there to arrange it exactly the way I want it and all of that. So yes, once again, we are vastly different. Sometimes, I know. Melissa. I think I would be all in for like a rain, rearranging or, you know, the new, but cleaning out the old, I don't know. It just feels so tedious and terrible. So, <laughs> all right. Back to the question. I know. So I have, um, I always have such a special place in my heart for kids who hate chores. Um, I, I feel, um, an immense more amount of compassion for the child in these situations than I do for the parents. I think a couple things, first of all, if you didn't catch our episode, um, 161 on chores that Greg did last month or the month before you for sure should, should catch that. Um, but I think the other thing is, I know it can be incredibly frustrating as a parent when this happens, but you don't want to give chores to your kids that hold up the family functioning is what I will say. I've I've said a lot. So, you know, her breakfast dishes, if they stay on the table, presumably like the family, you know, the day could continue to go on with those there until she was finished in the bathroom and they would still be, you know, in our house, they would still be waiting for her when she came out and I wouldn't make a big deal out of it. It would just be like, Oh, well, great. Well now you can, you know, 
glad you're finished. Now you can, you know, clean up these breakfast dishes without a lot of, I think if we can take our frustration out of it, then we can keep it de-escalated in that situation. But I think just understanding how um, hard some chores can feel to kids, you know, can help explain why. I think if if you see it as a continuing pattern, then what we want to do is help our kids learn how to give voice, use words instead of using their behavior. So providing an environment where she has permission to say something like, I'm too overwhelmed to do X, Y, or Z chore right now. Could I get some help? Or may I take a break, you know, rather than just disappearing to use the bathroom. And then I think that'll help, you know, that that self-advocacy goes so much further in life as a life skill later on. Right. And I always like to communicate to my kids that I'm completely confident they can do whatever it is I'm asking them to do. So I try to use when then statements like, you know, say to your daughter, you know, these breakfast breakfast things need to be cleaned up. Um, I know you may want to use the bathroom first. That's fine. But when you've cleaned up your breakfast, then we can, you know, and give them something that they want to do. Like, you know, maybe the breakfast dishes are going to sit there for a little while while they do they're in the bathroom or whatever it is they're doing. But then when they want to move on to the next thing that's enjoyable to them, like playing outside or watching a show or whatever, say, you know, you can give a yes and say, yes, when this is done, then you can do that. So as frustrating as it is, I would try to diffuse it, remove as much power from it as you can, whatever it is, whether she's avoiding the chore because she doesn't want to do it, or she's feeling overwhelmed and anxious and she's going into the bathroom because she doesn't, you know, she's kind of calming herself, whatever it is, I would make it as little of a deal as possible. Two other random tidbits that came to mind, at least as you were talking. One is, you know, Dr. Purvis used to talk about levels of engagement, you know, that we want to meet our kids' behaviors at the level that it is. And so as frustrating as this is, it really is a level one behavior. She's not hurting, you know, it's kind of an avoidant behavior. It's it's not hurting anyone, you know, if it is chores like the breakfast dishes as it's aggravating to us, but it's like not actually like a safety concern. So so we have a tendency when we're frustrated to kind of level that up, you know, respond to it like it's more like a level two or a level three behavior. Um, so I think if we can keep level one engagement around that, like kind of playful and light, then that will be helpful. And two, um, relieving ourselves in the bathroom is actually a really great way to reset the nervous system. So she might be using that as a self-soothing technique without even really realizing it. And she maybe come back to the chore after that and, and be able to do it. Okay. Now we keep thinking we're bouncing off each other. The other thing that I think would be so tempting for a lot of us parents is say, if you don't come out of there in three minutes, this is going to be the consequence. You know, the last thing you want to do is give your child that much power. So I would just not, if you're at all inclined to do that, which I know I might have been, I would just let it be, let it not affect you in a way that is going to turn it into a useful tactic in her relationship with you. So do you have more to say about that, Melissa? No, but it's why I love these mailbag episodes. Cause if I had just sat down in the Facebook group and like typed an answer, it would not have been this good, but the talking it out, super verbal processor. So this is. Yes. (laughs) Yes. We could go on and on. Can you imagine? Okay. Our last question today is from Cammie. She said, why can't my adopted son age eight learn after what seems like thousands of discussions about it, that if he hides his destruction from us and then we find it, we will be upset. 
But if he would just tell us when it happens, we won't be upset. My toddler has learned this concept, but he can't. And I just don't understand it. Oh, well, I can feel that frustration. Uh, We have both neurotypical kids who came with, you know, all the healthy attachment because they were ours, you know, from womb to now and, you know, kids who came to us with lots of early adversity. And I was just um, watching a workshop on attachment and just being reminded, you know, how much is different chemically in our kids' brains? Like our kids by birth had were flooded in their early days with all this oxytocin, which is, you know, what happens when we have these positive relational moments with a, with a primary attachment figure or another safe person in our life. And, and oxytocin works in the brain to help make us curious and help us learn new things and helps with felt safety and executive functioning. Um, but cortisol has like the opposite effect, right? It's the stress hormone. It causes all kinds of physical changes in the body and it absolutely shuts off the ability to learn and replaces, you know, all the, what should be oxytocin with, you know, you know, inflammation and all these other things. So I think there's a couple things to remember is that our kids that have early adversity do not learn vicariously, which is, you know, they have to kind of be taught the same lesson over and over and over again, very specifically. They don't kind of just, you know, learn by osmosis and by observing. Um, and that second of all, the sneaking and the hiding on top of all of that other oxytocin versus cortisol situation, a lot of times just comes from this nervous system bias of I'm not safe. And so it doesn't matter when, when we're sneaking and hiding, those behaviors are coming from a part of the brain that's that downstairs, lower part of the brain, the survival part. And it doesn't matter if the upstairs part knows that that's not the right thing to do when you're feeling triggered or like you're not safe. And our kids have false positives to that. Like I'm not safe, you know, all the time, like they're often feeling they're not safe, even when they actually are, Um, then they're going to have downstairs brain behavior, even if their upstairs brain knows that it's not the quote unquote right thing to do. Right. And because our kids are so wired to be fearful and to be hypervigilant when they do something they know they're not supposed to do and they break something or whatever it is. Yeah. Their instinctive response is to be afraid and to kind of somehow hope that magically we're not going to find out, but of course we do. So it's, it's tricky because it is a, a fear response. And it, I know it's so frustrating that he doesn't seem to be able to learn it. But again, like Melissa said, our, our kids just don't learn the way other children learn. And I don't know anything about your toddler, but maybe your toddler has more secure attachment or is more neurotypical than your adopted son. And so has learned it in a different way and, and doesn't have the fear response. They break something and they're not afraid. It's not taking them way back in their history and into their more primitive part of their brain saying danger, 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 where your, your son who's eight goes to that danger response. So anyhow, I, I think it's just going to require a lot of patience, a lot of repetition and really remember that even when we act calm on the outside, if we are not truly regulated internally, our kids can feel it. So we may think we're not giving off big feelings or giving off anger, but if we are not 
truly calm, they will know. So I would say anytime you have to interact on something like this, take whatever time you need to completely regulate and calm yourself before you approach your child about it. Yeah. Good words. Well, if you have a question that you'd like us to chat about here in a mailbag episode, we invite you um, to head to the show notes for this episode. You'll find links there, both to our Facebook group, which is a place where you can type a question in or to our speak pipe widget, which allows you with just the touch of a button to just talk to us and tell us your question because sometimes it's easier than typing it out. So we invite you um, to participate in that way. Thank you um, so much as always for all of your questions. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. Our new Instagram handle is at postadoptionresources. Or better yet, join our free Facebook community at theadoptionconnection.com slash Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. And remember, you're a good parent doing good work. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.